few weeks ago, uh, we received a visit from uh, Kay and Alec Lindley, some good friends of ours from Little Rock, Arkansas. And um, Alec uh, brought with him a loaf of bread that he had baked himself, and we, we really enjoyed it. It was really good. Now, when I eat something I really like, I generally compliment the chef and go back for seconds. Now, my wife um, approaches a little bit differently. If she eats something she likes, she immediately wants to know how to make it herself. <laughs> so she asked Alec, you know, you know how, how do you make this? Well, he said, well, it's just some, some flour, water, salt, and, and baking powder. It's just a little bit vague. And she said, okay, well, why don't we bake some ourselves? And he said, well, I made this in my Dutch oven. And of course, I don't have my Dutch oven here. Well, this immediately incited Dutch oven envy in my wife. And before the week was out, she had given away her old bread maker and uh, gotten a brand new Dutch oven, uh, which she baked her own bread got me thinking about bread. There are lots of different types of bread. The bread that I grew up with uh, was the kind of wonder bread, you know, the loaves and, you know, you, as a kid, you take off the crust and then you ball the, the rest of it up into a dough ball and eat it. Um, and across the world, it's almost a universal and in most parts of the world, there's something that passes for bread. Um, several years ago, though, I was living and working in a a remote part of uh, northeastern uh, Congo, Democratic Republic of Congo, an area called the Ubangi region. And uh, there, really, the only people who baked or ate bread were the few Western missionaries who were around. And, and I wondered how you would explain this concept of bread to a people who didn't have anything that looked like bread to me. And uh, so um, the, the language, the trade language in that area is called Lingala. I opened up my Lingala Bible, uh, hoping I'd get some insight into how they would translate, I am the bread of life. And um, uh, the word they used there was uh, Lingala word, kwanga. I am the kwanga of life. Well, I was quite shocked by that translation because uh, kwanga, in my mind, was not bread. Kwanga is a travel food that they use in that area. And the way it's made is they take um, uh, manioc or cassava root and they, they pound it into flour. And then they take the flour and they, they soak it in water for several days to let it ferment. And then they take the resulting paste and they wrap it in banana leaves and they steam it. They, they tie the banana leaves with twine and then they, they steam it. And then as long as it's in the banana leaves, it'll stay it'll stay good uh, for, for a good long time. Uh, now, when you take it out of the banana leaf to eat it, it has this sort of translucent uh, white appearance. It's a, it's a little bit rubbery texture, kind of like a giant white gummy worm. <laughs> now, if you Google kwanga, it'll say that it's tasteless. Well, <clears throat> that is probably written by someone who's not tasted it. Um, <laughs> The fermentation process uh, ensures that the, the odor and the taste are, are peculiar. And um, if you are hungry enough, it is the most delicious meal that you've ever had. And I admit, I have been that hungry. Uh, but for most uh, people, most of the time, uh, kwanga doesn't go bad because it's, it's already gone bad. <laughs> so 
in what sense is Jesus the kwanga of life? Is kwanga bread, and what is bread anyhow? Well, as my friend Alec uh, mentioned, it's flour, water, salt, and maybe some yeast. But what bread does, or what passes for bread, is, uh, is uh, transforming grain or a starch into a palatable, palatable meal. And this, uh, this enables a staple food to be stored without refrigeration, which is how it was used in the Ubangi region of, of Congo and how it has been used historically. Um, this ensures that food is available between harvests or during times of famine. Remember the story of Joseph in the land of Egypt. Uh, based on Pharaoh's dream, he stored up grain in storehouses during the seven good years and then sold it back to the people during the seven years of famine. Uh, bread, in some sense, is the enabler of human civilization. Before bread and before refrigeration or processed food, people had to spend their time searching for food daily because we were always only a few days away from starvation. With the uh, advent of bread and grain, where food can be stored, some people can specialize in other skills while the others grow and prepare food for the community. Uh, this enabled the development of technology, transferable knowledge, and tangible culture like music, the arts, sports. We wouldn't have the Olympics without bread. Uh, it also allowed uh, people to live further away from their food source. Before bread, people had to be right where the food was because you were no more than a couple days from needing more of it. Uh, the advent of bread where you allow, you're able to store grain means that people could live further away. They could form towns and cities. It also allowed individuals, groups, and governments to accumulate wealth and power. Uh, Joseph, through his actions in Egypt, saved countless lives, including the lives of his own family, but he also amassed for Pharaoh unprecedented wealth and power. So in a sense, bread is responsible uh, for most of what we would call human civil civilization. When Jesus said, I am the bread of life, it's a powerful metaphor. The bread we break, the bread we bake, uh, as well as the bread we break, is a, is, a, is a good picture of Christ in the sense that it's a gift from God and that it's made from things in nature, from wheat, from water, from salt, from yeast. But it's also something that you wouldn't naturally find in nature. It's very much a product of human endeavor. It, uh, it's, it requires human effort and ingenuity. And as a picture of Jesus as, as a fully God and, and fully human. Also, uh, bread um, endures after other food sources are exhausted, and that is a, a good picture of Jesus' faithfulness and his eternity. When Jesus says in this passage, though, I am the bread of life, he's referring most immediately, though, to the bread of heaven, the manna in the wilderness, which was interestingly neither of those things. Uh, it was not a work of, of man. It was completely a work of God. The only things that humans did was come and collect it in the morning. And it also didn't last more than a day, except for the day before the Sabbath, in which it would last two days. So, question is, was manna bread at all? 
in our conventional definition. I think what Jesus is pointing to when he said, I am the bread of life, the bread of heaven, is that he is the source of sustenance and satisfaction. He's the source of life, not just existence, eternal life, abundant life. I came that they might have life and might have it abundantly. Well, uh, bread is, is not meant to be looked at. It's, it's meant to be eaten. So what does it mean to eat the bread of life? Well, what Jesus is talking about in the latter part of that verse is, is whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Coming and believing, believing Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Jesus answered them earlier in that passage, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. God's part is to give. Our part is to simply receive, to believe. But receive we must. As Charles Spurgeon wrote, bread which is not eaten will not stay our hunger. The water in the cup may sparkle like purest crystal, but it cannot slake thirst unless we drink it. It's for us to receive what God has given in his son, Jesus Christ. There's a collective aspect of this as well, as well as an individual aspect. I remember when I was uh, in school, they had these posters up on the wall, you are what you eat. And I think the idea was to try and get you to eat better things than, than you might otherwise have eaten. There is a sense spiritually in which we are what we eat. Just as our bodies become the food we eat, become the bread that we eat, uh, some of it um, you know, shows in different places than we'd like. If we eat too much bread. Um, so we together become the body of Christ as we eat his body. This isn't a solitary meal. Uh, bread is meant to be shared, um, not just with, um, with each other, but with our community, with our world. As we read, as Ed read for us earlier in Ephesians, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So we take in the bread of life. Uh, we become the body of Christ. We share it with the world and the body grows builds itself up in love. The life that he gives us is his life, that we, be, that we be transformed into his image. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst, Jesus said. Uh, physical hunger and thirst are, are actually good things despite uh, being unpleasant sensations. Uh, hunger and thirst reminds us that we need food and water. In fact, the physical or medical conditions in which people lose their sense of hunger or thirst uh, generally lead to sickness and even death. Um, physical hunger and thirst are not meant to be permanently satisfied. Spiritual hunger, though, is meant to be satisfied. We were never created to be spiritually empty. 
We were created as both physical and spiritual beings. In Genesis chapter 2, the Lord formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. We are the stuff of earth with the breath of God enlivening us. We were never meant to be anything but spiritual as well as physical. The spiritual emptiness we feel, though, reminds us of our need for God. Spiritual hunger and thirst can only be satisfied by God himself. So what keeps us spiritually hungry and thirsting? Last weekend, uh, we went to visit um, many people in Arkansas, among them uh, my older son, uh, who's 21. I went to go visit him and help him out with a few errands that he needed. Um, and he was complaining of a sore stomach. And I, being a physician, I was thinking, you know, what is this differential diagnosis? You know, um, <clears throat> do I need to bring him to the emergency room? And I looked around his kitchen for a moment, and I saw bags of potato chips, uh, uh, packages of cookies, um, sodas, energy drinks, and not much else. And so the diagnosis in this case uh, did not require either history or physical examination. <laughs> but we do the same thing spiritually, spiritual junk food. One type of spiritual junk food is religion or spirituality without a life-giving relationship with Jesus. Now, religion and spirituality have some value. Uh, they may help us to become more aware of the, of the divine or of our own spiritual nature, uh, they may give us some good values and morals uh, for living in this world, and they may even help us to interact more positively with others and, and with ourselves. But without a life-giving relationship with Jesus Christ, religion and spirituality do not sustain or satisfy. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is a relationship a relationship with Jesus, a relationship with God. Ideals and ideology are another form of spiritual junk food. Good things like social justice, family values, environmental activism, democracy, artistic beauty, scientific truth. And these all should point us to God, who is the source of all truth, goodness, and beauty. But without a relationship with God, uh, these also are spiritual junk food. Other things that we do to fill our, our spiritual tummies, uh, accomplishments, work, home, hobbies, fitness, even raising a family uh, can become a, a form of spiritual junk food, although good in itself. Human relationships, good and, and, and healthy, uh, they don't ultimately satisfy unless we're also rightly related to God. The lowest form of, of spiritual junk food, uh, sort of the, the Twinkies and, and pork rinds uh, of spiritual junk food, uh, worldly pleasures and distractions that we occupy our time with. Some of these aren't bad in themselves, but others lead us into places of darkness and dependency. Receiving the bread of life ultimately means abiding in Christ and belonging to him. Later on in this chapter, Jesus says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. 
So how do we abide in Jesus? Well, from a practical perspective, the answer is simple but not easy. Meditating on his word and responding to him in prayer, both individually and collectively. And that's how our order of, of worship is organized. We, we meditate on his word and then we respond in prayer. Letting Christ form our thoughts and shape our beliefs. Living out our relationship with him in, in the way we worship, in the way we love others, and how we care for ourselves and the world in which we live. Letting Christ transform what we do and what we say. He also abides in us. Eating Christ's body means belonging to him as he abides in us. This spiritual reality is symbolized at the communion table, the Eucharist, where we take the bread and the wine as a symbol that we belong to him and he belongs to us. This is spiritual reality that actually makes us together one in Christ. As he abides in each of us, we are one in him. And this is a spiritual reality that ultimately sets us apart from the world, although we're called to live in it and to reach the world uh, in sharing the bread of life. As St. Augustine wrote, for all the world's rage, it doth not break us because we belong to Christ. For all the world's caresses, it doth not seduce us for we belong to Christ. Amen. As you're able, please stand as we read together the words of the Nicene Creed. 